We are coming to the end of this short letter from Paul to Titus this evening in chapter 3. So if you'd have your Bibles open in front of you, that would be a great help. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 15 in particular this evening. And as you're turning there, I can remind you, I hope, of the theme, the overarching theme of this letter that we've said again and again. It's grace training for godly living. That's what Titus is all about, showing us the grace of God that has appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ that teaches us, that trains us how to live godly lives for him together in the church. And this evening we come to our final passage, and there is a clear theme in verses 8 to 15. I wonder if you heard it as we read through earlier. Have a look at verse 8 once more, if you would. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then drop your eyes down to verse 14, please. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. Do you see it, the frame of this final final passage in chapter 3? Verse 8, to devote themselves to good works. Why? Because of the grace that we've been shown, that grace that we saw in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and again in chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, the grace of God that overwhelms us when we understand the free gift of salvation from our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. That grace should lead us, verse 8 says, to devote ourselves to good works. And then verse 14 again, let let our people learn, our people, the people of God in the church, let us learn to devote ourselves to good works. Let us grow. It's not something that you, you learn when you become a Christian. That's that. It's rather, according to verse 13, something that you grow in. Let us learn to devote ourselves in good works. So grace appears and leads us to want to do good works for those around us. But we grow in the Christian life week after week, year after year, in learning to do good works, learning to practice them, learning to be, according to the language here in our passage, to be devoted to good works. One of our favorite musicians as a family is a, an American violinist by the name of Joshua Bell. I don't know if you've ever heard him or heard of him. Uh, but Joshua Bell is an extraordinary violinist. He's a world-class performer. And he appeared uh, at a, on a school stage recently to some young school children. And he talked about what it meant to be devoted to his craft as a musician. And Joshua Bell stood there in front of those children and he said that Being devoted to being an excellent violinist means for him practicing the violin two to three hours a day. And then he said this, after he told them a few other things, he said, actually, when I have the time, I love to practice four hours a day because I love it. I enjoy practicing. That's how devoted he is to his craft. Maybe closer to home for some of you in these weeks right now would be someone in a different realm of life. Cristiano Ronaldo has been on our screens recently, those of us who've been watching the World Cup. And I wonder, do you realize what Ronaldo's 
daily routine is or has been over the last decade and more as he has trained himself, as he has devoted himself to becoming one of the best football players in the world. Ronaldo, evidently, three to four hours of practice on the pitch almost every day, as well as several times a day running 25 to 30 minutes to get his heart in the zone so that he can do what's needed during the games, cardio runs, weight training. Allegedly, at least in 2009, he was doing 3,000 sit-ups a day. Oh, painful just to think about it. That's how devoted he has been over time to becoming one of the best footballers in the world. That's what devotion looks like for Cristiano Ronaldo. That's what devotion looked like for Joshua Bell. And devotion for both of them has borne good fruit, hasn't it? They perform beautifully, and we love to watch them at their craft. The gifts that they've been given and the opportunities that they've had, together with their devotion to working that out, the habits they've formed, the joy they find in their devotion, has borne good fruit. And that, brothers and sisters, is the kind of picture that Titus leaves us with in his gospel this evening. He says, if you have been gripped by the gospel of grace, you will be zealous, you will be devoted to good works. If you know what grace means, then you will live a life of devotion, of joy, of habit, of practice that issues in good fruit and good works. So let's have a look at how this passage this evening leads us to understand the kind of life that issues in good works for God's glory and what this kind of devotion means. We'll look at it from three different angles. We'll see that devotion to good works is merciful. We'll also see that devotion to good works is missional. And finally, we'll see that devotion to good works is something essential for the Christian believer. So first of all, devotion to good works is merciful. We go back then to verse 8. Verse 8, excuse me, tells us, Paul says to, to Titus, I want you to insist on these things. Why? That little purpose clause, so that, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And he goes on, these things are excellent and profitable for people. They're useful. That word for profitability is something tangible, that these people are doing something that is useful for those around them. Now, we thought a little bit about this last week, that when the gospel of grace overwhelms, because we realize that we did not deserve God's love, could not have ever deserved God's love, that he was overflowingly generous in bringing us to new life, in regeneration by his Spirit, that the right response to that is not to turn inward, but to be opened up and turned outwards, to say, how can my life be of service to those around me, useful, profitable for people around me? And then verse 14 again holds out for us, so as to help in cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. Why should we be devoted to good works according to Titus chapter 3? It's because we are overwhelmed by the generosity of the God of grace who has saved us. If we know what grace means, if we know what generosity means in the gospel, we will be generous people seeking to serve those around us. If we know the extent or even some of the extent to which we have been shown mercy by God, as sinners who deserved condemnation and wrath, 
and yet who were given grace and love and blessing in Christ. If we get that mercy, then we will be merciful people. And so, Titus says, insist on, insist on devotion to good works. John Calvin says, what's our reaction here? If we're urged to do good, to do good works, we really have a reaction that says, I want to be left alone. Come on, don't, don't tell me that I have to actually get up and do something. Because my natural inclination is, I just want to be left alone. I was listening recently to something on BBC Four, and uh, Lord Somebody or other, who's in House of Lords, was being interviewed for Desert Island Discs, and he said something very interesting. He said, I've worked in business in lots of different countries in the world, and in certain countries, when you make a lot of money in business, you're expected, it's just the culture, to give back to society. But then when I come home, and I, I work in the UK, and I work in London, and I've got my head down, and I'm making lots of money, and someone rings me to ask for money, do you know what my first inclination is as, as, as a British businessman? Now, this is his words, not mine. My first inclination is to hang up the phone and run the other way, because I think if I give you anything, you're going to come back again and ask me for more. That there are cultural resistances, he said, to being generous, even when you know that you have been overwhelmingly blessed yourself. And I think we've got to grapple with that kind of sinful attitude in ourselves oftentimes, that kind of selfishness, that even though we know, we hear week after week of the mercy that we've been shown in the Lord Jesus, we are still only grudgingly sometimes looking to give in service. So we need to be urged to be devoted to do good works. Now, good works are tangible in this passage. We've seen that. They're meant to be profitable for people. They're meant to help in cases of urgent need. And so we're thinking then of our time, our talent, our treasure, those kinds of things that we have probably heard before. How can I be, with what the Lord has given me in my circumstances, of service to those around me? So let's get practical for a few moments. For some of you who are members of this church, you are already giving wonderfully, and you have been serving wonderfully over many years. And we we are so grateful for that. And our service does not unmarked. And we want to say thank you. And yet, we want to say in the same breath that we all need to grow in even greater devotion to good works. So what what might that look like for us? Well, it might be that we help with the Sunday school. And many of you have volunteered and stepped forward over the last year or year and a half to do so as an assistant or as a teacher. But we've got some people who are moving away soon, and we're going to need more helpers. So maybe that's one way that you can serve others here very practically. Others of you have signed up for the stewarding rota and are growing in your ability to be joyful faces on the door, welcoming people in helping them to feel welcomed and and to find the hospitality here in this congregation that we want to be evident as those who know the grace of the Lord Jesus. Maybe you could be one who steps up in a stewarding role. Maybe you could continue to grow in your own ability to open your home in hospitality, even if it's unplanned. That's hard, isn't it? Some days you come and you think, right, I've planned it, I've organized it, I'm ready to go. And then other days you come not thinking 
and yet you meet someone who's just here on the day who might need a place to go for lunch and be welcomed in. Maybe that's one way, practically, that you can be devoted to good works, showing hospitality. There are many other ways that we can do that together in the church to serve one another. But Titus is not just talking about service within the church here. We're going to say this several times this evening. Because this is, these are good works that are merciful, not just to those who are of the household of faith, those who are believers amongst us already, those who show up in the congregation. This is devotion to good works that are merciful for those that we run into day by day on the street, in our workplaces as well. Our neighbors. You might have heard that St. Francis of Assisi is alleged to have said, that uh, when, I, uh, when I go around, I don't necessarily need to use words to preach the gospel. I can show kindness to preach the gospel. That's actually not a very good way to frame it theologically from, from what Scripture teaches. But he does have a point. Yes, we absolutely want to be growing in evangelism and sharing the good news about who Jesus is, what he's done for sinners. But if we're only doing that and our lives are not demonstrating mercy, and love, and care, and a sensitivity for the needs of others around us, then we need to take on board what St. Francis was saying there. We need to be devoted to merciful good works for those around us. Why? Because we have been shown such mercy ourselves. Cases of urgent need, verse 14 says. Urgent need here has to include, it just has to include in terms of the way the language is phrased and the context that's laid out for us in Titus and in the other pastorals, the poor. And I want to talk to you about the poor for a moment, because as we look around among us here this evening, we don't see very many that we might call poor among us, do we? And I think that's one of the things I've been struck by as I have prayed through and thought through this text this past week. Where are the poor that I could possibly show mercy to week after week? Now, we could spend a long time debating and defining who are the poor. I'm quite happy to leave it very vague. Where are the people who are in need, who have a lot less than I have, that I could be showing mercy to week after week? And that brings us to something that lurks in the background here in Titus and in the other pastoral epistles. And when I say that, I mean 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, which are often taken together, and rightly so. And that is the diaconal ministry of the church. We prayed earlier for the work of the deacons in this congregation. The work of the deacons. What are deacons for? What's the deacon's court well, they're, they're for caring for the temporal needs of the church. They watch over the financial accounts of the church. That's absolutely right. They, they make sure that we can pay our rent so that the lights don't get shut off on us in this building, that we can show up here and worship, that we can send money up to the, the free church in Edinburgh. Yes, absolutely. But what are deacons for in Scripture? You might know that in Acts chapter 6, The office of deacon was born, wasn't it? Because those who were preaching and teaching the word of God needed to have their hands freed to do just that. And so deacons were appointed to care for 
the, the needs, the practical needs of those saints in Jerusalem, to provide food, to watch over the widows, to do the work of diaconal ministry. And texts like 1 Timothy chapter 3 give us more detail about what diaconal ministry looks like. But we shouldn't think that just because deacons aren't mentioned here, that it's not in the background. Remember, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 5, what was Titus left on the island of Crete to do? He was left there to appoint elders in every town to get those churches on their feet, up and running, structured with leaders who could lead them. Because what happens at the end of the letter of Titus? Well, Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, I want you to come to me. I want you to come to me at Nicopolis this winter if possible. It's, it's perfectly conceivable that Titus was meant to get those churches up and running and then move on with Paul and move west with Paul to continue the work of church planting. And those churches were meant to have elders, but also on the pattern of the epistles to have deacons. And deacons are appointed for this kind of merciful ministry, devotion to good works. I love the way it's put in, uh, in, the, in, in another denomination with whom we share warm ties. Another group of Presbyterians put it this way. What's the office of deacon about? The office of deacon is one of sympathy and service. After the example of the Lord Jesus, it expresses the communion of saints, especially in their helping one another in time of need. And then it goes on to talk about the duty of deacons. I think this is exactly the kind of thing that our passage is holding out for us here in Titus 3. It is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop, get this, to develop the grace of liberality, the grace of generosity in the members of the church, and to devise effective methods of collecting the gifts of the people and distributing them to those ends. Isn't that a striking vision of what diaconal ministry could and should be about? The deacons leading the way, in a sense, with sympathy and service, the grace of liberality, modeling that for the congregation, that that's what deacons are meant to do, and enabling that through the administration of the funds and the resources here in this church. So I want to ask you this evening to do a couple things. First of all, can you pray for us on the deacon's court, those of us who are deacons? Can you pray that we would do that, that that would be our desire to grow in the grace of liberality and to be able to model and lead in that way in this church. And could you pray as well that the Lord would raise up more men among us who desire that good office of deacon, that it's not just meeting to settle accounts. Yes, it's that, but that it's so much more than that. It's leading the church and being devoted to good works. Now, I mentioned the poor earlier. And there have been lots of debates down through the ages in the history of Presbyterianism about to what extent do the deacons work to to show mercy in their ministry? Is that simply among the members of the church? Does it overflow to those outside the church? And most would be agreed that there is a kind of prioritization there, that first of all, the members of the church have a priority, that we care, we look to the needs of those members. Absolutely, that's the case. 
But surely, surely when we come to a text like verse 14, so as to help in cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful, in the context of chapter 3, which seems to move from an inward kind of relational focus in the church, chapter 2, to chapter 3, looking at how the world sees us and how we interact with the world around us, surely that grace of liberality should be overflowing beyond simply those in this congregation. And that brings us to the poor. We meet here in this rich, wealthy city, down here in this financial district. And yet, as some of you know, there are many people who have a lot less than we do on our doorstep. And that's the case in all of our communities as we live around London. Let me read to you what someone in the 19th century in a Presbyterian church was urging his congregation to think about. What if, he said, we have no poor and needy in our midst? What a sad and telling question. No poor in our midst. A church without poor is like unto a church without children or a church without the elderly. But, it may be asked, he goes on, of what use are the deacons to take care of the poor in churches where there are no poor or maybe just two or three? That indeed is a sadly defective state of the church where there are no poor. There must be something very deficient in its zeal and aggressiveness If amidst the multitudes of poor around us and mingling with us, there are none in the church itself. Now, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to pound this like a hammer this evening, but I have to say, this has struck me this week as I've reflected and prayed on this passage. Where are the poor in our midst, brothers and sisters? Some of us were just praying before the service for the work of bags of taste up at the Golden Lanes and hearing a report from from Adrian and from the others who go up there, from Jillian and Jan and those who are able to do that during the week. And what a ministry, what a ministry to be able to be devoted to the good work of caring for the practical needs of those people just up here in the Barbican. And we all have opportunities. Maybe we can't get away from work during the week to join them there. But what else could we be doing during the week and indeed together as a church? This is a matter I would suggest for prayer, for great prayer amongst us. Where could we have a vision for service and a ministry of zealous, devoted good works of mercy to those around us in this city? Devotion to good works is merciful. Well, one practical way that we could do this, even now, as we begin to pray for a greater vision, is to think about the benevolent fund of this church. We have a benevolent fund. Maybe you know that. Maybe you don't know that. But there is a benevolent fund, which is a fund from which the deacons can give money to those who have need. And we're approached from time to time by people who have needs like that. And it is a delight, I have to tell you, it's a delight to sit in a deacon's court meeting and to hear of a financial need and to be able to say, let's write a check. Let's help there. Let's help practically. Or to hear of an, another kind of need and to be able to meet that need. That is a great joy. But that fund, that fund is, is limited, of course, by the intake, by what goes into it. And so that's one opportunity you might have, is to designate some of your giving from time to time to the benevolent fund for the work of mercy ministry within this congregation. What a delight to be able to share what we have generously with others. 
Devotion to good works is merciful. Secondly, and a bit more briefly, devotion to good works is missional. Do you see the context here from verse 12 on explicitly? When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenas the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. This context is the context of Paul's gospel church planting mission of taking the gospel out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This Nicopolis he speaks of is probably the Nicopolis on the west coast of Greece, which is within striking distance of the Italian peninsula, because we know, don't we, from Paul's other letters, that his heart's desire was to get to Rome, but even to get beyond Rome to the west, even to Spain, to take the gospel where it had never gone before, so that every everyone could hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul here, as he writes to Titus and these churches on Crete, says, you can help. You can help in that work of the mission of the gospel going out. You can help in practical ways by hosting these missionaries that I'm sending to you, by taking care of their physical needs, by giving them what they need and sending them on. And so this evening, again, our text pushes us in very practical ways to think in terms of our mission support. As a church, we have identified certain missionaries that we have prioritized in our support, our prayer support and our giving, our financial giving. So we've got Marceli in Uganda, and some of the women heard about her and her work just this past Friday night. The shepherds, Andy prayed for Paul and Helen Shepherd and their family this morning, also ministering in Uganda. What about Adam and his wonderful work with those refugees on the continent and other work in Central Asia that he does? A wonderful mission that he has. What about Manuel and Alba Franco in Almunecar in Spain, faithfully ministering the gospel there in that community? What about the Haddington Church plant that we're supporting up north? All of these ways that we can certainly be praying specifically day after day, week after week for, but that we can also be devoted to good works by opening up our pockets and giving, giving generously to the work of gospel ministry in those specific ways. That's a very specific way you could respond to God's word in this text this evening, is by going home and thinking of strategically over the year ahead, the next financial year for some of you, at least uh, many of us have been thinking financial years to an end, and thinking... How can I give over the next year in ways that are practical, helping cases of urgent need, not being unfruitful, but bearing good new creation fruit? In the context of the entire letter of Titus, from chapter 1-5 to chapter 2-10 and onwards, that kind of practical devotion to good works of gospel ministry sits within, sits within the growing good order of a church that is adorning the gospel of grace, the doctrine of grace, with good works. And it it shows. It attracts others to us because they see this is not a common kind of group that's meeting together. There's something extraordinary going on here. The levels of generosity here are not something that is easily explained. That's the kind of church, surely, that we want to be at London City Presbyterian Church. So devotion to good works is merciful. Devotion to good works is missional. And finally, devotion to good works is essential. It's essential. You see again in verse 8 that headed off our text this, this, this evening. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist 
on these things. What is the saying? What's the trustworthy saying? Well, it's that, it's that saying encapsulated there in verses 4 to 7 about God our Savior who has saved us not because of our own works, who's regenerated us by his Holy Spirit, and who has now sent us out to be devoted to good works. Insist on these things, Paul tells Titus. And so for those elders who are proclaiming God's word, we've got to insist on it, that grace leads to good works. We cannot have only one or the other. We've got to have both. In that order, grace leads to good works. And I want to just close this evening by thinking about several things that might, that might keep us from devotion to good works. If Paul's so insistent on this, what might trip us up? What might be some obstacles that could keep us from good works? So four things, very briefly, as we finish. The first thing is our sin. It's our sin. It's our stubborn pride our willfulness, our selfishness, and our sin. And maybe you're here this evening, and you're not a member of this church, and maybe you've never even professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're, you're coming to this church because you've seen, this is an interesting group of people, or maybe you're coming because uh, you've been welcomed in, and, and you've just you've felt hosp- hospitality, and so you're coming along. But you've never yet professed to be what... Titus chapter 3 verse 8 says are those who have believed in God. That is the God of Jesus Christ. You have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's partly because you haven't acknowledged your need for Christ. That you're a sinner in need of Christ. That's the first barrier to good works. Because if that's you, then probably you've got it like many of us had it before we were, we were gripped by grace. You've probably got it backwards. It's not grace that leads to good works as for a Christian. For you, it might be good works leads you to God. Maybe you think that the things you do in service of others, the mercy you show, the compassion that you show, those extra hours that you put in at work or as a volunteer because you see the needs around, that that's the thing that's going to get you in with God, that's going to have you seen as righteous with God, that it's your own good works that make you acceptable before God. If, if that's you, if you have that kind of thought, then you've got it absolutely backwards. And you've got to go back to what we saw earlier in chapter 3, verses Four and following, that when the goodness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And it's underlined like it could not be any more clearly in anywhere in Scripture. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. There's a different quality of good works that we're talking about here, depending on the ordering, and it's very important. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are trying to do good things and live a good life, even in service of those around you, that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. But it is not enough. It's not enough to reconcile you to God because every single good work that all of us do is tainted with pride, with self-interest, and with sin. And we know that upon reflection. And it's not good enough to earn the favor of a holy God who's perfectly righteous. 
That's a different kind of good work to what Titus 3 is urging believers to do. So if that's you tonight and you're stuck there on those good works, trying to earn the favor of God, trying to justify yourself as a good person because of the good things you do, then please, please would you hear the word of God pleading with you. It's not because of your good works. You cannot be saved on that basis because they're all tainted with sin. It's only repenting and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has done the good work for you that you can be saved in order to do the kind of thing we've been talking about this evening. Because there's only one man who's ever done perfectly good work, not tainted by any sin, not tainted by any selfishness, and that was the Lord Jesus who lived a perfect, obedient, pure, and holy life even unto death on a cross in the place of sinners and bore in his body the condemnation, the wrath of God poured out upon him in the darkness of that cross. And he bore it all for you so that you don't have to do good work to be made right with God. That's the good news in Titus. And that's the grace that appears in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, that then leads us to be devoted to good works. So that's the first barrier we've got to grapple with this evening. But we've got to keep going back to that grace. And if you're a believer here this evening, you know by now that Titus, uh, the, the epistle to Titus, won't let you go with grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. And we've got to keep our focus there because there is a risk, a very real risk, that we get so focused on the good works we do in service of God and on the performance of those works that we take our eyes off the gospel of grace. And you know what happens then? We become spiritually deadened and dull. We become legalistic in our motivation and we come, become comparative in the way we, we measure ourselves against others in doing those good works of service rather than being motivated by the freedom of being set free from our sin and the joy of what it means to have been saved by the Lord Jesus. We've got to keep going back to grace. Another barrier for us, not only is there our sin, not only do we not lose sight of grace and focus on the work itself, There's divisiveness and distraction, and you see that in verses 9 to 11. We're not going to dwell on the details here. We know that there were people among this young, these young churches on Crete who were dividing the congregation. They were dividing the congregation. And that was, according to verse 9 in the second half there, leading to a a way of life that was unprofitable, worthless, unfruitful. The exact opposite of the kind of thing that good works are supposed to lead us to with, with what's profitable and what's fruitful for others. So divisiveness in the church has no place. A focus on, on small details that are, that do not strike at the vitals of the gospel message have no place in dividing us as a congregation. And it's in fact, it's in fact part of the, part of the role of the elders as office bearers. Back to chapter 1 verse 5. To make sure that the congregation is not divided and not diverted from doing good works by these kinds of people. And so what are they meant to, what are we meant to do with them? We're meant to warn them once, verse 10, and then twice, and then have nothing to do with them. That church discipline, even, on the part of the Kirk session, is oriented towards devotion for good works, because it enables us to be united and not divided in the mission of the church. And finally, 
we come to the last barrier, I think. And this is a very real one for me. I think it may be for many of you as well. Something that keeps us from being so devoted to good works. Something that keeps us from the kind of zeal that would lead Ronaldo to devote his entire day to training. That would lead a Joshua Bell to delighting in four hours of violin playing. What is it that keeps us back? I think it's, it's really our spiritual laziness and our worldly business, isn't it? That our priorities are often completely out of line with the kind of thing that we're being urged to do here. That, that I'm concerned with my own time, my own comfort, my own task list for all the roles and responsibilities that I carry. And there's no time left to be zealous for good works. No time left to devote two or three hours a day to practicing and developing the habit of a zeal for good works. So our circumstances, of course, differ. But we've got to be challenged by this text this evening, brothers and sisters, to think, what would a time audit on our daily schedule reveal in terms of devotion to good works. What would that reveal? I hope that would reveal that much of what we do in our professions and our vocations is serving others. I hope so. What would it reveal out of work time? How many, how many hours did you spend last week devoted to considering, actively pursuing service of others around you? What did that look like for you? So I want to ask you this week to prayerfully consider what devotion to good works might look like for you, for you as, a, as, as an individual, for you as a family. Maybe as a family, you can sit down together at family worship and have this text open in front of you and ask the Lord to show you what are some ways practically that you can serve your neighbors out of love, knowing that you have been saved and set free, that you can turn with generosity to meet their needs. What are some, some ways that you can show mercy, to seek to show mercy even to the poor, either in this part of London or in your own community over the coming weeks to practice that devotion. I know of a family that got in the habit where they lived, there were lots of, lots of beggars on the street corner, right? So as you pull up, this happens around London, doesn't it? In many places. They're there, and as you are waiting at the red light, stopped, they're walking up and down asking for money. And who knows what they're asking for it for? Who knows what their needs are, what their story is? But surely these are people deserving of mercy. And so this family said, right, we don't want to give money because we're not really comfortable with where that might go. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to stock in our car, every time we leave the house, a little goodie bag of some food, of some toiletries, of something that might make some practical difference. Now, that's, you might say that's a really small, simple thing to do. But it's a beautiful example of a family that said, how can we create a family culture that knows what grace means in our own lives and, fo- and pushes us to be devoted to service and good works for those around us? How can we anticipate those kinds of interactions in our week and be ready, be ready, to show the the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to those people. Devotion to good works. It's not an option, according to this text. It is something that those who are grasped by grace will grow in. Their devotion to good works. It's the entire frame of Titus. And this is how we close this evening. Have a look back up at the opening of this beautiful little letter. Verse 4, chapter 1. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. What's Paul's first word of greeting? Grace. 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It's how he begins. How does he end the letter? Look at chapter 3, verse 15, the last phrase of the letter. Grace be with you all. Grace trains us for godly living. And it's only grace that's going to open us up like never before to be devoted to good works for the good of others and for the glory of our God. Let's pray.